Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. Tradition has it that Mary left Palestine with the disciple, the apostle that Jesus loved, with John, and they settled down in the city of Ephesus, one of the seven churches of Asia, and lived the rest of her life there, and he took care of her as Jesus had commanded her to do from the cross. Imagine Mary walking down the streets of Ephesus. She knows that her son, the Christ, is the Savior. And she walks past that temple, that temple that is twice the size of a modern football stadium. It rises in the Ephesian hillside into the clouds, the Mediterranean sun glistening on it. Hundreds of priests coming in and out, serving the great god Artemis. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine Mary watching that and witnessing that? 75,000 square feet of unholy space dedicated to a God who is not a God. 127 columns, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Magnificent, splendid. Antipater of Sidon put it this way. He had seen most of the other seven wonders of his world in that day. And he said that when he came into Ephesus and he saw the house of Artemis then mounted to the clouds, that all those other marbles lost their brilliancy. And he said, lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked upon anything so grand. Imagine Mary walking past that temple and thinking about her son who had died to save her from sin and death. Endless incantations by priests, some of them eunuchs, some of them virgin male priests, and a temple filled with temple prostitutes, where day after day there were countless innumerable incantations to invoke the presence of a lifeless God, begging that God to appear, and she never did, seeking to appease and to attract her in a kind of quid pro quo relationship where if they said just the right thing and they offered just the right offering, perhaps she would intervene and change their fate or their fortune. Imagine what Mary must have thought about that. Today, only one of those 127 columns is erect out in an abandoned field, very much like the statue of Ozymandias that Shelley tells us lay wasted in a desert sand. You see, the psalmist tells us about that. He says that the idols of the nations are but silver and gold. They are simply the works of men's hands. They have mouths, but they what? They don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't what? They don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have noses, but they don't have breath in them. And here's the clincher. He says, and those who make them, those who make those lifeless idols 
are just like them. They're lifeless. And those who worship them, all the same, those that trust them, they are destined to a lifeless life. This morning, as we have already heard, the living God beckons you. He beckons you, come and walk with me and worship me in spirit and in truth. We are in a series on worship, and what we've done over the past month is once again rediscovered that truth and rediscovered, too, that we don't do that flippantly. We don't casually come into the service of worship in the presence of the holy I am, Jehovah God Almighty. We take it seriously. We come and we confess our sin and worship as we have done this morning, and he promises that if we are faithful to do that, he is faithful to forgive us of all of our sin and cleanse us of what? All of our unrighteousness. And then he does what? He commissions us. He commissions us not just to further service, but further worship, because when we depart here, we not only depart to serve, but our service is our worship. We depart to serve him and worship him by serving others. We worship not a lifeless idol. We worship the king of kings. We indeed are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. Peter tells us that. And we're commissioned then to go forth for the king and continue our service of worship wherever we go. We're God's sole possession. And we go in his name. And we bring our offerings of spiritual worship as we come this morning before him. And we are called to worship him according to the author of 1 Chronicles in a very specific way. How do we as a holy people, how do we as a holy nation, how do we as a royal priesthood then proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light? Let's stand together briefly as we read this short passage from 1 Chronicles 16, just two verses. But it tells us how we do this. How do we worship? Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory, the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. And God's people said, Amen. Let's be seated. You know, I'll take you back a few years before Mary, back to about the year 1000, 1050 B.C. The background for today's passage was that the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant, and they ran into some problems. They put it in front of their idol, Dagon, and he fell over one night. They put him in the same tent the next day, and he fell over, that is, the, the idol, Dagon. In the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, fell over and was broken into pieces. They moved him to Ashdod and then to Gath, and plagues broke out there. And finally, the Philistines, after seven months, said, we've had enough. We're taking the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of this almighty God back to, to, to the Jews. They took him then to Beth Shemesh. And at Beth Shemesh, the people had the audacity to open the Ark of the Covenant and look into it. And God visited death upon them to the tune of 50,700 people. And they proclaimed... Who is able to stand before the Lord, the Almighty and Holy God? And they took him then, they took the Ark of the Covenant, they took it then to Kiriath, Jeroim, where it abided then for the next 47 years, 
and the house of Abinadab. You see, 20 years later, Saul took the Ark of the Covenant and he moved it slightly away from that to Gibeah, to his capital, just about three miles north of Jerusalem. But the house of Abinadab apparently continued to be the custodian of the Ark of the Covenant. And there, for another 20 years, it remained so that it had been away from uh, the tabernacle for over 40 years. And David then became king, and after seven years in ruling in, in, uh, away from Jerusalem, when he then finally moved his capital to Jerusalem, he then decided to move the Ark of the Covenant then to abide there when he moved from Hebron. And you know what happened in the first instance. He took 30,000 men with him, and he ordered the priest to put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart with oxen, but that's not what the Word of God said. Deuteronomy, the fourth chapter, said that only who was to transport the ark? Only the priests, the Levites, and only a special tribe of the priests, the Kohathites. And David ignored that, and you know what happened. When the oxen stumbled and the ark was about to fall over, Uzzah reached forward to touch the ark, and God struck him dead. Not because so much Uzzah's disobedience, although he was disobedient, but because all of Israel had not listened to his law. So they moved the Ark of the Covenant that represented the presence of Jehovah, this mighty, almighty God, creator God, to Obed-Edom, and it stayed there for three months. And here we then come to the scene for the background of today's passage. David had defeated the Philistines, and he had built a new tent in Jerusalem. He was going to finally move the Ark then to Jerusalem, and he assembled 862 priests this time. He was going to do it the right way. They consecrated themselves, and they had, they had ranks of singers and bronze cymbals and trumpets and lyres and horns and harps accompanying all the elders of, of, the, of the, uh, the state of Israel. The captains of the thousands with David accompanied him, and then they transported it to Jerusalem. And David then had Asaph then lead the congregation in this thanksgiving hymn. It's a rather long hymn. We only read two verses from it. It comes from Psalm 96, Psalm 105, and 106. And if you want to find it in the Psalms, this passage from 1 Chronicles, you'll find it in Psalm 96. There's a parallel passage. Psalm 92, 1 and 2, is almost verbatim what we read. And in, in that context, that psalm communicates what was being communicated in the hymn. This is about the power of the almighty Jehovah God that speaks in the thunder of the storm that we heard the other night. Ascribe to him what? Ascribe to him glory. You see, all of this demonstrates, the story that we have just heard, demonstrates the power of the almighty, holy, majestic, splendid, holy God. This passage tells us where, how we're to worship. When we come together in liturgical worship, and it tells us also how we are to continue to worship Him as we walk with Him in relational worship, as we heard about relationships just a moment ago. What does it tell us? First, it says that we are to give it up. We're to give it up in order to glorify Him. And then we see that we are to step up. We're to step up to gratify Him. And then finally, we are to bow down in order to magnify Him. Do we have a noise that we can stop out there? Okay. 
We give it up to glorify the Lord. It says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. What does it mean to ascribe? You know, it really bugs me when I go to a concert or when I go to a meeting, and it's a rather flippant phrase that they use today. When, they, when they, the person steps up and, and they want people to applaud the person that's going to perform, they say what? Give it up. Where'd that come from? Let me tell you where it came from. It came from this psalm. A scribe, that's literally what it means. It means to give, but it means more than just to describe. To ascribe is to give it up, give that which you have up, yield up. And we do it today in a popular way, way by applauding. And there's nothing wrong with applauding, but it's a worshipful phrase. What it, it, it sort of, it, the, the analogy would be this. We have something that we have to attribute glory and honor to something else. And like a mirror, we reflect it. That's what we do when we worship. We ascribe by being a mirror, and we mirror the glory of God back to Him. It's as we are standing at the Grand Canyon, and, or down in the Grand Canyon, and you call out there, and you hear the echo from the, the boundaries of the canyon ac- uh, echoing back God's Word. We repeat God's holy words. This morning, we have done it many times. We have recited, we have read, and we have proclaimed God's Word, not as powerfully as He does, but we faintly echo it, and we try to be faithful in repeating it exactly as He has given it to us. That's giving it up. You know, the observation I would have about giving it up in worship is this. We're not the source. We're not the source of that glory and that honor and that power, not ourselves. We only reflect it. We only echo it. It's very much like the moon does not possess its own light. It reflects the glory of the sun. That's what we do in worship when we ascribe. We reflect the glory of the Son of God. We ascribe to Him praise. We give it up only to Jehovah, the word Lord, of course, the great I Am, the self-existent one, the one who was before there was anything else. And the Jehovah who proclaims himself to be the covenant God of Israel and our covenant God who calls us into, once again, relationship. When it speaks about the families of peoples, it expands this beyond Israel. It wasn't just for Israel. When you look at the phrasing, families actually means tribes. And the people means nations. And what's being said here in the plural is that tribes from all peoples, from all nations, are to do this. When you look at this hymn that's in Chronicles in a broader context to the rest of the passage, this becomes evident. This isn't something that only the people of Israel were to do. God's goal, as he says in Isaiah, was to call all people to Zion so that all might ascribe glory to him. In verse number 23, his salvation is provided for all, even though all will not be saved because they will not respond. But it's provided for all. Verse 23, it says, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation. This is for all peoples. In verse 26, His sovereignty is a sovereignty that is universal. For great is the Lord, the chronicler says, and the psalmist sang, and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared above all gods, even Artemis, who is great in Ephesus. His providential power is over all in this song in verse 30. Tremble before him all the earth, not just some of it. Indeed, the world is firmly established. 
It will not be moved. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice and let them say among all the nations, the Lord reigns. This ascribing is something that we do when we give it up that, is, that everyone is called upon to do. It's a universal call to praise the Lord. When we praise the Lord and we ascribe Him, when we give it up, we're giving up specific things that are spoken about in this passage. The attributes of God are expressed here, those attributes that He shares with us. How can we give it up? How can we mirror it? How can we echo it back unless we possess it ourselves? You see, he shares those attributes with us. Look at them. They're glory and strength, <coughs> excuse me, glory and strength, and also the glory of his name. We bear that when we come into worship. The glory, the kabod, is his dignity and honor, and we know that we bear that. Everybody that walks the face of this earth bears the dignity of God, the imago Dei. Every man, woman, and child bears the dignified image of God. We are the crown of his creation. We have been made a little lower than the angels. And we have been crowned with, it says what in Psalm 8? Glory and majesty. It is his, it is not ours. But particularly for believers, particularly for those who follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we have another glory that we reflect. We reflect the redemptive glory of salvation that has been bought with a price. John tells us that Jesus prayed this. The glory, Father, that you have given me, I have given to them. The glory that he has given to his son, Jesus Christ, Christ has given to you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You bear the image of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, just as you and I are one, they will be one with us and the Father. We bear the glory of God when we come in worship. We're then to ascribe it back to Him. We bear His strength. When it talks about strength here, it's not just the raw burst of power that's spoken about here, and God certainly has that. But it's a word that means an enduring kind of resilience. We are given that by God. The Old Testament promise is this from Isaiah 41. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. You see, I will enable you to endure. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. And that promise is fulfilled in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians, Paul, you know, as he talks about that one that was lifted to the third heaven, and then he talks about the thorn that is in his side, he gets the promise from God. He says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power and it's this word here except in Greek my power of endurance is perfected in weakness Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5 after you've suffered a little while you're going to need endurance after you've suffered a little while the God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory will himself perfect confirm and strengthen you and establish you. You see, when we come to worship, we bring that strength that he enables us to endure every kind of problem and every kind of difficulty about which we will talk tonight from Ephesians, the fourth chapter. He gives us the glory of his name, it says here, and we ascribe that back to him. This is his reputation. Israel went forth in the name of Jehovah God Almighty. He then was identified by them as the God of Israel. 
They bore his name, the name of the I am who is the I am, the name of the covenant God who walked with him. And so when anybody saw a mighty miracle performed for the Israelites, they knew it was their God that did it, that that it was Jehovah who did it. You see, they bore the glory of his name, and it is the same for us in the new covenant. We bear the glory of his name, and we call him Jesus, the name that is above all names, the name that has been exalted by the Father, so that someday every knee will bow and every tongue confess that what? Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, when we come to worship, when we gather to worship, we bear those things that he has given us and we ascribe them back to him. You see, we represent the name of Jesus Christ. And Paul tells the Colossians, whatever you do, in word and deed, do all in what? In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. I think this first point, what it says to me is this, in ascribing the glory back to God. You know, worship, friends, is the ultimate reciprocal activity of God's people. Think about that. We don't generate it. He generates it. And we echo it back. We reflect it back to him. You see, he shares his glory with you. He shares his strength with you. He shares his name with you, and he calls you then and us to meet at this appointed place and time to do what? In liturgical worship, then to praise him and to reflect that glory and strength and name back to him. You see, he stakes his reputation on that. He stakes his reputation on this fact that when we walk out those doors, whether in the back or in the front, when we go into the world, the world watches us. And he's staking his reputation on this, that when we do that, when we walk into the world, we will bear that strength and that glory and that name. And when people see us, they know that we represent the Lord Jesus Christ and that we identify with him. And we ascribe that glory in the way we live when we leave here. There's a second thing that this passage tells us. We're to step up, to step up to glorify the Lord. It says here, bring an offering and come before him. Now, let me do those in reverse because we actually come to bring the offering. The word come there means to enter, but it's not just to stroll in. We don't just stroll into this sanctuary and casually sit sit down. We actually enter for a purpose. The word means to enter for this purpose of being enumerated and being counted, to be accounted the one that follows God. You see, it's an invitation. It's a calling. And it's also an exhortation. When we come, we're invited to approach Him, to approach the Almighty God. And when we leave here, we are called to come with Him and to walk with Him in relationship. We enter in liturgical worship. We depart in relational worship. We take it with us. It is a calling. We enter to be numbered to declare our allegiance. Everything that we have done this morning has to do with declaring our allegiance to God Almighty, to be identified by the world. The world watches as we worship this morning. The world knows that we are gathered together on this hill at Gamble Street Baptist Church. And in so doing, we are fulfilling that calling to come together and to proclaim we're the people of God. It's an exhortation. We're called to gather together at appointed times and places, the people of God. We call them churches, New Testament churches. 
And the plural application of this is the families of the peoples joining together. It suggests then that, it, that worship can be individual, yes. We're called to walk individually and by families into the world this next week, but we are also called as the peoples of God. We're called to gather together in liturgical worship, assembled at appointed places and times, and the world once again sees what we do, and they hear the message that we proclaim. So we come intentionally to be numbered as God's people and then to offer or to present an offering. That word offering really means uh, to lift up, to bring an offering, to carry it, to sustain it. And in fact, it also means to take it away. And that's what we do. You see, when we make our offering to God, we are making a gift. The word means actually present. You know, we sang in our first hymn, about making tribute to God. I don't know if you remember seeing that language in, in the hymn, but that's what an offering is. An offering is, is a, a tribute. It is a gift that is given to the Lord. It's in, in medieval times, the Lord of the manor gave land to his peasants, and they farmed the land, and they gave back part of what they had, as we heard Gail pray today, we give back a small part to God. They gave a small part back to the Lord, and the Lord of the manor did what? He provided protection and provision and justice. And that's what the Lord God Almighty does with us. As we give our offerings in the offering plate, it enables us then to, to do those things on his behalf that further his protection and his provision and also sustains us in life. You see, it's a, it's a present. It's a, it's a gift that we give. The word there, when it says offering, actually in a technical way, when it was used in a religious sense in the, in the day of the New Testament, it meant a gift that was offered to a divinity as a non-blood sacrifice. The Jews made many blood sacrifices, but offerings were different. They were not bloody sacrifices. You see, we're saved by sacrifice. We know that. We are saved by a bloody sacrifice. We are saved by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He sacrificed for us. When we come together and we make our offerings, it's not a blood sacrifice. It doesn't save us. In fact, it's a living sacrifice. It is something that is full of life. It is a voluntary gift to show gratitude. And, and in the Old Testament, even, you have this idea of non-blood sacrifices that reflected a voluntary gift to the people of God. You see, they were called, first of all, gifts to show gratitude that was not obligatory. But the other two ways that it's used in the Old Testament is for a meat offering, first of all. And a meat offering sounds at first like you're talking about beef or lamb, but that's not what it meant. A meat offering had nothing to, to do with the flesh. In fact, the animal was not killed for the offering. No, it was a food offering. It was a grain offering. It was something that provided sustenance for life. Jesus gives this example when he speaks to his disciples after he's talked to the Samaritan woman. And they want him to eat food. Remember? Come on, it's time to eat. It's lunchtime. They, they've just gone and they've gotten food and they're bringing it back to Jesus. Come on, let's eat. And he says what? My food and he uses the Greek equivalent to this term for offering. My food is to do what? The will of him who sent me. You see, it's that idea there. It's something that sustains life. It is not a blood offering. In John, the sixth chapter, 
He tells those that follow him, do not work for the food that is the offering that perishes, but for food, the offering which then endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. The point about this is the offerings that we give are something that sustain life. They don't save our lives. It's like the memorial offering in the Old Testament. The memorial offering remembered God and acknowledged his faithfulness, but it also reminded God. They would bring the offering, the memorial offering before him to acknowledge his lordship and to remind God that they were being faithful and that they depended on him. Think about the story of Cornelius. We heard the story of Ananias this morning. Think about the story of Cornelius. That has to do with Peter. You know, he's there in Caesarea, and he's praying, and he's giving his alms, and he's being a faithful God-fearer. And what then happens before Peter shows up, before he's even called to go and visit Cornelius? The angel of the Lord comes to Cornelius, and he says this. He says, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And it's the Greek equivalent to that term for offering. You see, we bring an offering that is voluntary, something that represents life. It doesn't save us, but it shows our dedication and our memorial to God. And the purpose of it is to please Him, to please God, not to manipulate Him. The pagans, as we heard earlier, the pagan priests would come before Artemis, who was not there, And they had the incantations, and then they would bring offerings and put them on the altar, and they would step back, and they would promise, if you take this offering, and if it's pleasing to you, then you will do this for us. They tried to manipulate their gods for their fortune and their fate. That's not the way the offering to God works. No, it is there for one purpose. This offering that we lift up is for one purpose. Paul says this, We have this ambition in our lives that we might what? Please the Lord. It's to gratify God. That's why we bring our offerings to Him. It's not because if we do this, He'll do that. Folks, He's already done that. He's already done everything imaginable and beyond imagination to save us. He has done more than we can ever imagine by His grace to provide bounty and benefit and to sustain us in life. We don't manipulate Him. No, we bring our offerings. We come, step into His presence to bring our offerings to do what? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be what? Pleasing in your sight, O God. What pleases God? Okay. Put your shoes on. I'm going to step on some toes. What pleases God? I'm going to step on my own toes. Sincerity. Sincerity. Worship should be a genuine desire to what? To serve and please Him. Okay, we're safe there, I think. What pleases God? Reverence. Reverence. When we come to worship... And right now, if you're about to fall asleep, stand up, okay? I've been there. I I understand. But we do what? We stay focused. Don't stay focused on me as I preach. Stay focused on the Word of God that's being preached that comes from Him and reflects as a mirror back to Him. Stay focused on the words that echo back who He is and on His glory. 
There should be a reverence when we come together in worship that is focused and that honors Him. What pleases Him? Decorum. Decorum. When we come to worship, our attitude should be right. We should come prepared to do what? To bring our offerings, but we should come prepared to meet the living Almighty. Holy God. Our attitude ought to be such that it's reverent with decorum. Our behavior when we come to worship should have decorum. Our dress should have decorum. Uh, does that mean that we have to wear a tie for worship? Does it mean you have to wear a tie to preach? No, you might wear the liturgical red for Pentecost. Folks, it, it, it's not about whether you wear a tie or a suit, I believe. But did you think about what you were going to wear when you came this morning? Or did you just throw on whatever was there? Is it clean? Is it respectable? You know, there are plenty of people that don't have clean and what we would call respectable clothes. No, it's not a matter of that. It's a matter of the attitude. We do what? We bring the best that we have for the Lord. We don't shortchange Him. In our appearance even, you know, it's a matter of decorum. What pleases the Lord, it's respectful. It's respectful for his holy place and his holy word and his holy liturgy. I know that I have said that when we leave here, we go out to worship him. When we leave here, when we walk down that aisle, when we walk out that door, we leave to do what? We leave to serve him, which is an act of worship. I get it. We go as pedestrians into the world to serve him, but that does not make worship pedestrian. Are you with me? What do I mean by pedestrian? It doesn't make it common. We walk with the Lord, but that doesn't mean that we just bring him down to our level to be a pal and just stroll through life. No, we're called to walk in the presence of the Almighty God in a respectful way. When we come together in liturgical worship, there is holy space. I had a seminary professor that told me one time, you know, don't call it a sanctuary. It's, it's not a place of asylum for anybody. <laughs> Don't call it a special holy place because it's not a special holy place. It's another building. You can worship God anywhere. That is not what I mean when I talk about walking with the Lord out there. Wherever you go with the Lord is holy space, yes. But I believe this. This is a holy place. This place on this hill is a holy place set apart for the people of God to gather. I believe that when we walk into this sanctuary it's a holy place and we should respect that you know sometime during the week I come in here I don't know if you ever do and not a single soul is here yes there is he's always here he's not just here but sometimes I come and I meet him in, a, in the quietness of the week this is a holy place let me tell you friends you can preach the gospel anywhere you can share the gospel in front of Walmart or at Dunkin' Donuts, and that's holy place. But this place right here is a holy place like unto no other. When we come behind this pulpit, we must take it seriously. We're proclaiming the word of God. 
when you come up here and you read the Word of God, it's a holy act. Standing in a holy place that pleases Him when we're respectful of that. It's His holy Word. This liturgy that is in this bulletin is a holy liturgy. It began with the Word of God. It began in the hearts of those that planned it. It began with Suda. It began with Alan. It began with Ben as they put the worship liturgy together. It's a holy liturgy. It may or not be perfect. There might be typos in the bulletin. But the Word of God is perfect. The liturgy is holy. It's to be respected. The Word is holy. We stood today for the reading of the Word. We don't always stand. But when we do, that's a special way of showing this is the holy Word of God. What pleases God, our enthusiasm. We come joyfully engaged in worship. We come anticipating His presence. What pleases God is quality. To give him what? The best of what we have. And the best of who we are. That is worship. Give of your best to the master. Give of the strength of your youth. Throw your your soul's fresh glowing ardor into the battle of truth. Give of your best. Give of your best to the master. Give him first place in your heart. Give him first place in your service. Consecrate every part. You see, when we step up, friends, when we make our offerings, our offerings ought to be ambitious offerings. Paul tells us, as I said a moment ago in 2 Corinthians 4th chapter, I have as my ambition, whether I'm there with you in Corinth or whether I'm here, whether I am present or absent, I have this as my ambition, and that is to please the Lord. Genuine worship is about pleasing God. It's not about us. Worship isn't about what we get out of it. It's what we give to God. And the most ambitious offering that we can make, what is it that pleases God most? What's the most ambitious offering that you could ever conceive offering to God? It is a what? It is, as in the Old Testament, it is a voluntary memorial meal offering that is a gift to God. And what is the very best that you can give? The very best that you can give. We're going to close this series in a few weeks with this passage of Scripture, but you know it well. Therefore, I urge you, my brothers, by the mercies of God, to do what? Present your bodies. Present your bodies as what? Living sacrifices, living and holy sacrifices. You see, this is the offering, and it's acceptable to God, and it is also your reasonable service of worship. You see, first of all, we glorify God by praising Him. We gratify God by pleasing Him. And then last of all, we magnify the Lord by submitting to Him. We bow down to magnify the Lord. In verse 29, worship the Lord in holy array. Worship the Lord means to bow down, but it's a unique use of the verb here. It's about the only way and the only place in the Old Testament that this verb root is used this way, and it's a reflexive verb. It's not just bow down. Well, we do that, but it's reflexive. It says, bow yourselves down. And that's more powerful. What it's saying there is, submit yourselves. You see, this goes beyond just bowing down. It addresses a very big problem that we have in worship today in America. 
True worship goes beyond just acknowledging his glory. True worship goes beyond just ascribing his attributes and reflecting them back to him. True worship goes beyond coming before him and giving an offering. True worship begins and ends with submitting ourselves totally to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We bow down. We bow down in holy array, and this can be misunderstood. It's a combination of two words. The word beauty, array, and then holiness, the fullness of God. And that's why the NASB says full array. Full really means holy. The King James, I love the way it puts it, come before him in what? The beauty of holiness. What this means is it's not what we do. You see, although what we do is important and how we do it is important, but worship ultimately is not about us and how we worship. Might we make some mistakes in the way we worship God? Yes. We're human. We're fragile. We're we're, we're fragile as dust. Absolutely. It's not about us. That's not what this holy array is about. You see, that's the theology of glory. The theology of glory is that we dress in splendor to come and to impress others. We dress in splendor to come and impress God. We come in the holy array to impress whoever it is. That's not what this is saying. No, in fact, the holy array is God's. You see, we're invited to do what? We're invited to come into the presence of God, in the presence of the fullness of His array. Come and worship in the beauty of holiness. We are invited as we come in liturgical worship to come into the presence of the beauty of his holiness. Think about it. In the Old Testament, they set up the tabernacle. And when it was first set up, before Moses went into it, the glory of the Lord entered the tabernacle and Moses couldn't even enter it. Wow. When they dedicated the temple under Solomon, You know what happened? The glory, the word isn't used in the Old Testament, we call it the Shekinah, the kabod, the glory of God, filled the temple in such a way that the priest fled. They could not abide the presence of the holiness and the splendor of God. Moses had to do what? Hide his face when he came down from the mountain because of the glory of God shining on his face. He had been in the presence of the beauty of holiness. The temple veil was there for a reason. It separated not only the people, but the priest. Not only the the court of the Jews, but also the court of the priest. The holy place, it separated all of that from the presence, the Shekinah presence of God. You see, it could not be abided. The beauty of holiness was so powerful. But thanks be to God, as we read about this morning from the book of Hebrews, there was a reason for that reading. What did it say? You see, the veil has been removed. Now we can behold the glory of God. The Word of God has dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory, even the glory of the only begotten who came from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. We see His glory, the Father's glory now, and the glory that He has shared with His Son. We see it in the body of Jesus Christ. And He invites us to enter into the beauty of holiness, and He permits us the privilege of coming in and worshiping the Father by lifting up the Son, Jesus Christ. He grants the benefits of His grace in the array of His holiness. He gives us power. He gives us purity. He gives us sanctity, and He gives us beauty. 
This beauty of holiness is about those things, friends. When we walk into the presence of God, we bring those things because he has given, give them, given them to us. But when we come into his presence, we experience it especially. We have his power. He gives us strength to endure. You know, I said Psalm 29 is a parallel text to this. When well, Psalm 29, it talks about worshiping the Lord in full array, and then it ends by saying this. He promises in verse 11 that the Lord will give you strength. So you see, the beauty of holiness gives us strength. The beauty of holiness gives us purity. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us of all of right unrighteousness. We are justified in right relationship with him. We have been purified and sanctified. And then what does Christ do? He takes this body. He takes Gamble Street Baptist Church and every other faithful, believing church of Jesus Christ. And at this very moment, what is Jesus Christ doing? What is he doing? You know, we, we use this passage at weddings, Ephesians, the fifth chapter, and it shows the analogy of a husband and a wife, and it talks about the wife being the bride of Christ. And Christ is the analogy as the husband. And it says there that he does what? He is presenting his bride. He is presenting the church to the Father in its purity and its holiness without spot or wrinkle. When we come together as a church of Jesus Christ, he bestows upon us that purity that is pristine and clear before the Father. He gives us sanctity. He is God high and lifted up, exalted almighty, separate from all of his creation. Though he is involved in it, he is separate. There's something about the holy awesomeness of God that is separate. In the same way, he has done what with us. He shares that sanctity with us. We're a nation of what? Priests. We're a holy nation. We're a priesthood of believers that we should stand holy and blameless for, with, before him. The beauty of holiness, share, he shares his beauty with us. You see, in Christ, we have been made new creatures. The old has been put away. Everything is new. There's a beauty about that. We come to him with unveiled faces so that we might behold the Lord's glory, we're told in 2 Corinthians 3, because we're being transformed in Christ's image from glory to glory. And we eagerly await the day when that transformation will be finished. And we will stand before God the Father Almighty in total conformity with Jesus Christ, having been transformed by the full body of his glory. You see, friends, when we come together in liturgical worship, we have a foretaste of all of those things about the beauty of holiness. So what do we do? We continue worshiping him in the same way as we leave this place. We keep walking in humble adoration when we leave here to serve him by continuing to submit to the Lord. We go into the world as a kingdom of priests, as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation, to serve him by serving others. And we share the beauty of holiness by doing what? How do we share the beauty of holiness? By proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. What a wonderful privilege it is not only to share in the beauty of his holiness, but have the opportunity to share that with others. So this passage tells us what? 
We glorify him, we gratify, we please him, and we magnify the Lord by doing what? By praising him, by magnifying him, not just in what we do here, but it's very important what we do here, but also how we take it out and share it with other people. Ascribe to the Lord his glory, not just by describing it, but by giving it up as we go out of here so that others might take it up and come in and offer their offerings and share in the beauty of holiness. Bless be to God for that great privilege. Would you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.